What's up, guys? We're finally back with another episode of Unhinged. Our very first one back as a podcast. So make sure you subscribe to us. Feel free to give us a loving review because we're here and we'll be back every week. So I knew I had to bring out a very special icon for our first one back. Meet Danielle. She's a very famous author, a DEI consultant, the OG horsey girl, a fashion and beauty insider. Danielle joins us on an unhinged chat to talk all things her brand new memoir, Token Black Girl, spill some never been shared before fashion insider tea, and lets us do a deep, deep dive on the New Orleans dating scene. You're really going to enjoy this one. Make sure you buy her book. I have three copies. We'll get into this a little bit later in the episode. You can purchase the book directly from this episode's description. So let's get into it. Okay, Danielle Prescott, the icon we know and love. Welcome to Unhinged, the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I also like love hearing your accent. It brings me so much joy. Really? I'm, I like that you say that because a lot of people when I go home are like, you sound American now. Oh, no, I really love hearing your accent. It's very comforting. So I feel like this is a, a good audio medium for you. Love this. Yeah, it's a new forum. And who better to be my very first online podcast guest? The One of the most talked about episodes of Unhinged IG series and the most follow-up requested. No way. Know? I had no mm-hmm. idea. So many people wanted a part two and this is the part two. And now you're a famous author. I am. I'm claiming it. I'm not that famous, like in terms of like the literary world, but like one day I will get there. Token Black Girl, a memoir. Tell us about, tell us about everything that's been going on in your world lately. So I don't know when this episode comes out, but my first memoir debuted on October 1st. So it's, today is October 14th. So we're two weeks out from the actual published date of my book. And it's been going really well. So many people have been reading it and interacting with it. Three people in Australia have bought it. Yay! Um, 17 people in Germany, about 30 people in the UK. So it's worldwide. It's everywhere. You're a famous author, babe. I saw you, I saw someone on TikTok say, how are you verified? And you wrote, I'm a famous author, babe. And I'm like, I'm going to use this for the whole podcast now. There is no way. <laughs> It's so funny when people ask that on TikTok, especially because I'm mm-hmm. new, newer to the platform. Um, but I do have a check mark because I I know the TikTok people, and uh, people get super sensitive about verification and followers and all that stuff. And I'm like, don't even worry about what I've got going on. This is a hard earned blue check mark. If I do say yeah. so myself. Just do the work, sweetheart. You'll get there. <laughs> exactly. That's what they should be doing. So you're on the book tour at the moment. I am, yes. And what a lot and of people don't been? really know about book tours and being a first-time author is you really only get a book tour if you get invited by venues. And so oh, wow. I don't know any bookstores at all. So I essentially made my own book tour by calling in all kinds of favors um, to fashion people because they have venues essentially and they put on events all the time and though we're not necessarily experts at selling books I am a reader but I also go to cocktail parties I go to dinners all the time so I think that readers can be anywhere 
Um, next week, I'll be hosting a Pilates class at New York Pilates um, because I am a reader, but I also do Pilates. I love this. What a chic book tour because I know last night was New York at the Nine Orchards. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So um, Shop Up threw me a dinner to celebrate the launch of my book, which was so generous. I have um, known the Shop Up team for years and years and years, and they suggested doing it at Nine Orchard, which I am out of the game. I don't even mm-hmm. live in New York, so I did not even know that it was like a sceny place. And Oh, babe, Dime Square, ex- where have you been? <laughs> There's a show about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Dime Square was only like two stores like when I lived in New York. We we can't go there because otherwise we'll spend the whole episode talking about it. And I really Absolutely. want to focus on the book, which I'm a super fan of because I have three copies. I which have, I love. I have the copy I pre-ordered, the beautiful coffee copy you gifted me, and the audio book. So iconic. The yeah. trifecta. <laughs> uh TBG. TBG super fan. So when it gets it. made into a movie, I want to be listed in the credits. Absolutely. <laughs> What's something that surprised you about this whole process with a book coming out? I think I'm surprised like how relieved I feel that it's actually out in the world because publishing is a really um, slow industry. And so a lot of people don't know that you can be working on a book for years and years and years. So I started thinking about what eventually became my book in 2018. I decided that in the beginning of 2020, I was going to take it really seriously and spend time making sure that I was going to write the book that I wanted to. So I wrote the majority of it in 2020. I get a book deal at the end of 2020, and then it was due in March of 2021. And so then we spent March and editing it. And so I turned the final draft in, in um, September of 2021. And it just came out this October. So even if I'm like working, I, I am working on a second book, but even if I turned it in, finished and ready tomorrow, the earliest it could come out would be 2024. And so it's funny, like to be someone who is very digital and online where things mm-hmm. are so immediate and people were like, wow, you've been talking about this for so long and it's finally out. And I'm like, wow, I have such a sense of relief of it being out in the world because I have been talking about it for so long. Also, when you're so used to like instant gratification and then a project finally comes out and people are like, what's next? You're like, what's next? No, this took me four years. Like we need to stay on this one right now, actually. That's exactly how I feel too. I'm like, oh my God, like do you, and I'm going to milk this forever. Like your first book Forever, only the gravestone's going to say famous author, babe. <laughs> I and hope so. To, and you moved to New Orleans to finish the book, or were you always were you always going to relocate from New York? Like, talk us. Well, actually, that. so I wanted to quit my nine to five job because it was really, really difficult, and um, I was the style director at BET for four and a half years, and just the grind of daily content driven by celebrity culture just became really, really hard. So I knew that I wanted to get out, but I also knew that having that steady paycheck is what allowed me to live the life I lived in Manhattan. And I was like, how can I continue to have a nice life um, and do the work that I want to do instead of feeling like work I have to do? 
Um, and so I was like, I have to get out of New York. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to move to like the suburbs. I probably could have like bought a house in like upstate New York or Connecticut or something. But I was like, no, being single in those places seems like it would be so hard. So I was mm-hmm. like, I still want to move to a city. Um, and now I live in New Orleans. And in a stunning apartment that I came to visit personally to meet your friends. It's so true. You were one of the only people that came to visit me all year last year. Really? Yeah. Guys, you have to, if you, not you have to visit Danielle and all your fans are like, Danielle, I'm coming to New Orleans. <laughs> if your friends are Danielle, trust me, you want to, you want to experience in New Orleans, which I've been living vicariously through your dating TikToks. Oh, well, thank you. That is the one downside, I think, of living in a city like New Orleans. Like, I I really love my life there, but dating is nearly impossible. I'm just not finding anyone that I like at all. Well, sometimes when you share the, like, the swipe options, I, I can see why. It's so dark. The apps in New Orleans are super, super dark. Um, I'm not giving up yet because I just got there and there's no way I've even scratched the surface of, Mm-mm. of like who I could meet and what I could do and see there. I, um, I'm also like a creature of habit. So like once I find places I like, I go to those places only. So I need to also diversify like where I'm hanging out and how I'm socializing to maybe meet more people. But so far the ones that I have met, um, yeah, it, it's not it's not looking good for me. But you're learning what you don't want, which is equally as important. <laughs> I am learning what I don't want. And, yeah, and that has been like a really good lesson. And mm-hmm. it's also been a good exercise for me in like what I'm willing to accept too, because I I, I had a sneaky link in, in New Orleans and I was like, if we I- love sneaky link. <laughs> but I basically had to end that too, because I was like, if I'm, telling the universe like this is acceptable to me then I am cutting myself off from like what else I could and like and I know that there is better like I was just like mm-hmm. I'm accepting this guy because I'm lonely and no one else here is piquing my interest and he's cute enough and nice enough and smart enough but ultimately like definitely was not my partner so I was like why am I doing this to myself I have to want more for myself mm-hmm what do you think? It's funny. I was talking with a friend about sneaky links this morning. Yeah. A friend in London who's like, I want a New York sneaky link. I'm like, hun, they are not good there. Go like, I, I don't know why we always think the grass is greener. It's not. And what defines a sneaky link to you? Like, is it someone who doesn't meet your dating criteria for a boyfriend or yeah. long term partner? And also like someone you don't need to like socialize with outside of you socializing with them for the purposes that you're doing it. You know, like, I was like, I don't need to take this guy to meet my friends or have dinner with them. Like, we don't need to integrate our lives that way. It's just about we create this world for just us to exist in. And that's about it. But it was not sustainable because my life is so much about like connecting with other people and spending time doing that. And because there were so many limitations in how he could interact with me, I was like, yeah, it's not worth it for me. And were you guys on the same page with being sneaky? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but okay. I also think because, <laughs> because I saw this like meme this morning and it, and it was like someone had said, why don't you, you know, why don't you post me? I see like a lot of other people posting me. And that person responded with here are my pro- my posting rates, my promo rates. 
<laughs> I was like, this is so good. If I could go back in time and use this, I would. I think that's hilarious. I've never um, dated anybody who would who asked me to post them directly. They would say they would make little comments about it like otherwise, but I I always like for the most part, I think. Maybe maybe in like 2012 or 2013, I might have slipped up and posted somebody, but I don't post any guy on Instagram. But you TikTok. do share your dating experiences very I candidly. Do. I try, yeah. yeah. Which has which has come back to a lot of interesting situations. Didn't somebody reach out to you and say, please take this down? There was like a moment. In- there was a guy that I went on one date with and it actually was a pretty good date. And mm-hmm. then he sent me a text. He was like, so I happened to... I, we had, he was like, I had a really good time on our first date. And then I happened to like, look you up on social media. And then he goes, you know, which is normal. Everyone does it. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, and then I stumbled across your TikTok. And then he was like, I was really upset to see that you posted me and you posted the message I sent you, but I blurred out obviously the number. No one knows any identifying factors about this person, but I thought it was like kind of strange how he set that up because he would went snooping and my Mm -hmm. TikTok does not come up when you like just Google search me um, because I'm very famous. (laughs) There's (laughs) many articles that will come up first and my Instagram and LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And because I've been on those platforms for a a longer amount of time, I've only been on TikTok for the past three years. He did the deep dive. So I'm like, you went looking and then you Mm -hmm. found something. So I don't know what to tell you, but I am not going to apologize for that because it's also my interpretation of events too. Like I'm allowed to live my life. And I didn't say anything bad about him. I just think he was like yeah. too, too, a little too sensitive about it. And whenever someone's like that, I'm kind of like, what do you have to hide? Like, what do you think someone's mm-hmm. going to like find out out there? It's a little weird. Also, it's like a, this is not going to work moment because my mm. life is very much online and this in the beginning where like none of your details are even, you know, yeah. well, this could only get worse. Yeah. That's obviously their insecurity they're projecting on you. Exactly. So I was like, this is not my person either. There you go. And so what's the date? So right now we're in sneaky link status or we're in like, cause you, you took a little break. I remember. I had to get off the dating apps cause they were making me depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like confirmation bias. Like I was like, Oh, like, there is no one in New Orleans that I'm interested in. And then I just kept going on the apps and finding confirmation that there was no one in New Orleans that I was interested <laughs> in. So I was like, I got to get off this completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm not even home. I'm in New York City. I'm in my sister's apartment. I am going to Austin, LA and Charleston for like the next tour stops. I'm not going to be back in New Orleans until the end of November. So I'm not really dating at all right now. I'm just working. You're dating yourself. You're dating the book. I'm dating the book. Exactly. <laughs> and of all the cities you're about to head to, is there anywhere you haven't been? I've never been to Austin. I'm so excited. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I, love, I love Austin. I'm really excited. And how, um, how are those like stops coming along? Are they, are they different experiences as well? Or It will be very different. Are they open different. to the public? Yes, um, I'm yep. going to Austin or Texas Book Fest, which is in Austin. So I'll be there. And that is like my one, a, again, another literary event that I have been invited to, which is a wow. very big honor. 
Um, and then I am a Soho House member and I've partnered with Soho House on some events. So I'm going to do an event at Soho House Austin and by George, which is a luxury fashion retailer, very famous in Texas. They will also be hosting a little cocktail for me. Iconic and amazing guest of the moment. Yes, I'm so excited. I want to get into the book without giving any spoilers because I feel like as someone who has three copies of the book, I can say highly recommend go get your own copy and even my ratio. But Uh I want to start um, with in the intro when you talk about uh, like the whole book experience for me, like every page I flip through and I feel like so many readers will have the same experience was I was like, I feel seen, I can relate and seeing those experiences in words validated so much for me personally. What, like, has that been the response for you from readers? Yes. And that was also what drew me to writing the book in the first place, that I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't crazy that you know the way that white supremacy had manifested in my life was not and i think that a lot of people have this view when they think about what white supremacy is they think it's like the kkk mm-hmm. or they think it's you know people yielding tiki torches in charlottesville and january 6 riders <laughs> and it's like white supremacy is so much more pervasive and in a lot of ways so much more subtle and in the ways that it shows up in my life is just that there is such a default to whiteness. And so it makes you feel immediately othered if you cannot participate in that. So something as simple as like deciding that the color nude, which is supposed to like disappear on your flesh is only for a very fair skin tone. So that making that standard, um, it can be really damaging. So immediately others, anyone who doesn't feel like they fit into that, but it also at the same time prioritizes anyone who does so that anyone who does fit into that standard automatically feels like, yes, the world caters to me, the world responds to me. I am the best and brightest and most important. And of course that affects your psyche as well. White supremacy does not just affect people of color. It also affects white people. Um, and that's how we end up with women who are, you know, Karens, because they believe that the natural order is just submitting to whatever their will is. Oh, you have, you, you need to answer to me because I'm in the store and occupying the same oxygen as you. Like, I'm going to demand that because the world has shown me that that's what's right. And so the book is a lot about how we can dismantle that thinking. And I hope that it it really speaks to people who are also people of color who are not just black. And I think that I um, I'm debuting merch, which is not ready yet, but it will be soon. But I I have a best friend who is Chinese American, and she was like, I want to wear token black girl stuff too, but it would be weird for me to wear token black girl. And I was like, Yes, it would. So I made token blank girl shirts so that you can fill in whatever. Oh, I love that qualifier, you know, response to you. So you'd be, you know, token brown girl, token Desi girl, mm-hmm. token Latina girl, token gay girl, whatever it whatever is. Whatever it is that other do. Yeah. Do you feel other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It, it's an interest. That's an interesting point because when I was reading, I was like, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, me too. But I'm like, not exactly. I had a variation of it. And yes. like when you were talking about the variety cover, I was like, and then you were saying things like, you know, there were places where I could see myself, but it wasn't in the mainstream. And it's interesting in Australia because that didn't even exist, right? Mm. Like, so yes, like we wanted to all date Hanson. Um, but, and, but like, there still were like these versions of like the Cosby show or like, you know, different avenues where you could see yourself. Whereas in Australia, it's like neighbors and home in a way. They're sure. like the two shows that come on yeah. every day. And like, I clicked the cast list the other day. Cause I was like, was I being like crazy and super sensitive? Every, there was not even one token minority Anything. person yeah. on the cast. And I was yeah. like, no fucking wonder. Yeah. And they, and people will get away with that for so long until someone's like, this isn't right. And what's really wild is that there's so much data and actual scientific research that demonstrates how harmful this is to people. Like we actually know it is harmful. So I like, why would we continue to do it as if it's not? Comfort. I think, I mean, like not from my point of view, but being comfortable and not wanting to, you know, but it's also, it's also not about like not wanting to give up power because there is power in representation and making people feel like they can participate in whatever the dominant culture is. Like that's a power flex to erase someone completely as if like Mm -hmm. Australian means white only, you know what I mean? Like that is powerful. Like that, that Toni Morrison is very famous in saying that white means American. Everyone else must be hyphenated. You don't get, just get, I'm not just American. I have to be African-American. My friend that I was talking about is not just American. She has to be Chinese American because we know that American means white. And when you, when that other is placed on you, I like when you talk about your mom saying like, you have to work twice as hard because Uh I think every minority kid grew up with that mentality. I know, it's but like, it's yep. so toxic. Cause when do you stop doing that? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like, I felt like at certain points of my life, I would like have worked myself to death and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's insane. And how, what are things you do now that counteract? Cause that mentality that's like drilled into you, it doesn't, oh, from, oh, for myself anyway, like it doesn't go away. No. It just like lingers in the back of your you know, like everything that you do. And it's like, you constantly have to work at feeling like you deserve to be somewhere or feeling like you deserve an opportunity or you should be so grateful to be in the room. What is something that like you've learned that's helped you counteract that? Okay. So my sister is here and she's going to laugh because I'm going to tell everybody, but we decided um, a few weeks ago that we would invent white man alter egos to help us navigate through life because (laughs) (laughs) as ourselves, we were just like, it's not possible. We're not doing it. Trying to reprogram yourself is very difficult because like for me, the natural response is like, I will stay, I will arrive early. I will also stay late and help everyone clean up. I am, you know, even when I get jobs as like, or I'm supposed to be the talent. I will be at the Met Gala for four hours, uncomfortable and faint. Which if you buy the book, you'll get to read about. Exactly. I was like, I'll do anything. Um, 
and that's so unnecessary and it's it's only harming me but i we went to a wedding one of my friends got married and it was in vermont and it was a very white wedding and i was like just observing i was like look how carefree and just comfortable all of these white men are i was like they look so stupid on this dance floor and they don't even know it and they don't even care like i was like that's amazing i was like i want some of that and i was like how am i gonna get it i just have to claim it and so we're in this like fake it to make it stage but we named ourselves my white man alter ego is named wyatt gabby's white man alter ego is named andrew we just actually let Wyatt and I Andrew fiercely negotiate something for us. <laughs> with this. <laughs> I think it's helpful. Um, yeah, and it's and not t- just in a professional setting, too, because that trickles into relationships. It trickles into self-love. It, like, trickles into every aspect of your life. Yes, absolutely. And I'm like, why am I so comfortable just being like, okay, of course, like, someone else should go before me. Like this should happen. And it's not about being rude. I think that like we have some sort of internal litmus that will stop us before it like crosses over to rude, but like, we're not going to continue to be pushed aside. We're not going to be like pushed around in negotiations. We like just successfully negotiated a job for ourselves. But I'm like, by being like, we're, we're fine walking away from this. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. care if you are going to say that, you know, we're not worth the money. Fine we'll walk away. We're not going to like twist ourselves up to then just be accepted. It's just not worth it. That's amazing. Congratulations. That's a really Thanks. great space to be in because it's- when you're like a creative entrepreneur, you have these like moments of feeling like you're interchangeable, right? So you're like, but what if like they just go to some and go to someone else or like, what if I lose this opportunity and just like yeah. being firm, being like, you know what? Like you want me, I'm the commodity you're coming to me for a reason and like being firm in that is actually so much more difficult than it sounds. It's a work in progress. I will say it like probably doesn't happen all the time, but like now that we're consciously thinking about it, I think things are getting better for us. Do you have any negotiating tips? Three tips that help people negotiate better. Getting an agent um, helped me so much in realizing like what was even possible. So I spent the majority of my career working in mainstream fashion magazines and I would get social media opportunities occasionally. And it, to me was just like fun money. Like I didn't really care about it. I never, I never pitched myself for anything. I never asked for anything. When any, whenever someone wanted to feature me or to do something with me, I would either say yes or no based on like what I felt, but it never felt like I was having to take those jobs. Um, and then when I quit my full-time job, like social media work became much more important to me. Um, but it's really cutthroat to have to like negotiate on your own behalf and for yourself, but getting a literary agent helped me so much with that because she showed me like, what was even possible. So for example, when we got my first like book offer, I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, this number is so high. Like, I can't believe it. I've never made this much money doing anything. And she was like, yeah, we're going to ask them for double. And I was like, what? And we didn't get double, but we got somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like I would have taken the least amount that was 
given to me. And truly, like, that is how women remain paid less. That is how women of color remain paid less because we are super conditioned to just be like, yes, whatever's been offered, like, I accept without being like, actually, no, I'm going to ask for more. So, like, my first tip would be ask for more. My second tip would be if you don't have an agent or anybody who can advocate on your behalf, you can invent that person. Make yes. a separate Gmail, <laughs> make an assistant, make yourself a manager, make yourself an agent. I don't care. But like sometimes stepping outside of yourself to like do that work, even if it's like pretend or whatever, mm-hmm. can be Then effective. you become Wyatt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah, know a lot. Yeah. I know some people that have actually done this mm-hmm. and it makes sense. For sure. Um, and then. Because you get to be the bad cop. And say, yeah. no, no, no. And then show up on the job and be like the talent. You know, you need exactly. that separation. Exactly. You don't want to have a bad attitude when you go on set. And then my last tip would be talk to your friends if you have friends in the same space. Because I texted you earlier this week and mm-hmm. it was like, what was the rate when you did this job before to make sure that people were not trying to shortchange me and like contracting me to do basically the same job? And mm-hmm. having transparency. And you don't have to do this with like people you don't know, but like, amongst your friends. Like, I think we should be talking about money. 100%. And I just screenshotted the whole thing. Like I didn't crop, but I was like, this is the whole thing. Like you decide this is what I, what flex I think they have because no one loses or get like, you don't lose from someone's gain. And I think people have this scarcity mindset, especially in the creative industry that if you like share information, like you lose in some way. And I don't, like, yeah, I, I don't know why. I think I it's know really good to talk to your friends, especially if they're doing the same kind of work as you are, about how much they're making and what they're doing with their money. And and also, I feel like if people are reluctant to give you that information, I would question, I question that person's like relationship with me because I'm like, I would so freely give that to you. Exactly. I'm like, wait a minute. So you're telling me you're going to be like sending me a whole text thread about how you like did anal with some stranger, but you're not going to tell me how much money you made on a job. Like that's insane. Like what kind of friendship do we have? Mm-hmm. Well, that's very specific. We need to know. You can tell me offline who that friend was. I going back to Gabby, who's sitting right next to you. Yes. I am obsessed with your family dynamic. Obsessed. Wow. I I love that you're all so close and talk all the time and spend so much time to get, like how I'm just fascinated by it. maybe it's because mine mine was like so dysfunctional like yeah we catch up and check in once in a while but like the everyday communication to me oh every single day multiple times a day we are like we genuinely love each other like it's so weird but it's, it's a little codependence as well but like we just really like all like hanging out. <laughs> That's incredible. Gabby's like, we don't. She's on the she's on the other end and then you're shaking her head. Gabby's um, like, please call me less. <laughs> um speaking of like baby Danielle, because I'm gonna mm-hmm. go back to the book, there was something yeah. that really stuck with me and a, a moment from your childhood when you were in kindergarten and you did your family portrait or your your self-portrait and you drew a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl. Sure, yeah. I know, people are so shocked by this. That was one of the things that I actually 
went to do research on to prove that it happens often um, and that I wasn't like crazy in having it happen to me. So to explain to everybody in kindergarten, um, we got assigned to draw like a life-size self-portrait. And so my self-portrait, I drew like the outline and everything. The paper was white. I did not choose a crayon to fill in the paper. So I just ended up being white by default. And then I added blonde hair and blue eyes, which I did not have. And so my mom was like to me, how will I know which one is yours when I come to school? And I was like, you'll know because it looks just like me. And then when she came, it was like this giant, you know, rendering of a cartoon person that was not reflective of me. But what I found in my research was that deciding what crayon to use, even deciding to acknowledge whether or not you notice that there is a difference between you and another child is a persistent anxiety amongst children of color who are like socialized to be around only white people. And, um, you know, not everyone is able to emerge from that environment as whatever they are ethnically and proud. Sometimes it's like, I just want to be like everyone else. Um, and so doing that portrait was my way of being like, I'm confused. I want to be like everybody else and I don't know what to select. And so I'm just going to go with what I see around me. And also want to note like, at the time, like we didn't have those other crayons that they have now. So they have a, now Crayola has a whole, like it, it's called like mm-hmm. tones or something where it's like different skin tones, but it was like the peach crayon. And then for yep. brown people, it was like, okay, do I choose chestnut? Do I choose sepia? Do I choose like caramel? Like there's so many other brown crayons, but you don't know which one to choose. And I always felt this way in like art class, like once you make a mark, it's like permanent. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't undo it. If I choose mm-hmm. the wrong crayon, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, you know, I I had a um, high school friend reach out to me recently and she sent me like a photo, as someone I hadn't been in touch with for a really long time. And she sent me a photo being like, throwback, so good to see you, like doing well now. And it was a photo of us. And I showed it to John. And he was like, your face is white. <laughs> like, I'm white in the photo. And no. I had, like, repressed the fact that there were just no makeup shades for me at the time. Like, this is, oh. like, pre-Fenty, pre-like of course. extensive CoverGirl range. Like, it didn't make it over there. So, like, I, I'll show it to you. I'll send it to you after. Like, I have, like, a, my – it's like I'm in white face. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And I didn't – it's – it's so crazy because I didn't even like, I, I was so unaware at the time it, it, it didn't click with me. And it wasn't till now at like 34, I looked, I looked back at this photo and I was like, oh my God, I spent a lot of high school <laughs> in white face. Sure. Yeah. It was a, it was a tough like makeup world. I, I don't really think people who are young now can appreciate like the struggle that it was to find makeup that complimented you and even to find ways of doing makeup 
that mm-hmm. complemented your face and your features. It was such a lost cause. Like I, I have some old photos that I'm like, oh my God, this is scary. But I didn't even know any differently. Like at the time, I don't even know if I was conscious enough to be like, this is not my color, but I'm putting it on anyway. It was, it was like the, another thing I really, especially being Australian, like when you talked about fake tanning, cause I would go and fake, it was like an experience you wanted to it be was. part of, right? Of course. Like before the school ball, it's like everyone fake tans for like a month solid. And I'm like, I'm not missing out on that like girly bonding time. Like, yeah, I'll fake tan too. And needless to say, the results were <laughs> tragic. No one will be seeing <laughs> my year 12 ball photos, which is what you guys call your prom photos. Uh-huh. <laughs> What do you think now, like, do you have any kind of anxieties or reservations about impending motherhood and like how you're going to handle the identity conversations with the baby? Absolutely. Yeah. Especially because I didn't expect to have a biracial baby. Yeah. And, and I, and a lot of people have, I wake up every day and somebody comments about my husband being white every day well there's not I, a day that goes by that like that's not a stranger on the internet telling like pointing that out to me it's super fetishized um in general and especially the resulting child and i've never seen anything creepier than like people uh, like i mean I've had a lot of friends who've had biracial children by now. And so it's like insane, like what people talk about, what they think about, what they speculate. It's crazy. Also, especially because not okay, like whiteness aside, like my husband's from Minnesota. Yeah. Right. Like that's like a whole other, that's like a whole new level of like whiteness. And (laughs) I think because of the baby's, obviously not here yet. So the Mm -hmm. conversations are between the two of us. And Mm -hmm. I feel fortunate that he comes to the table as a listener and as a learner when I'm like, these are not the, like, these are not the experiences our our child will have. These are not the experiences our baby will have. Like you and like the baby will have a very different upbringing to you and will be, you know, will face a whole set of prejudices that you might you, you will never be able to understand and he's super aware and not defensive which I think is really helpful because of course you know a lot of people like that's a hard thing to hear yeah I think also I've spent a lot of time on TikTok so it, what always is funny to me is when the child like reflects a phenotype that doesn't necessarily show like they'll, they might have a very ethnic name but like how they present is either like super white or it could be the other way that they present as super ethnic and they also occupy a, a white identity and people are demanding all the time that they prove what oh, their yeah. parents look like so it's always like parent reveal or like grandparent reveal so I'm like oh my gosh like if I marry a white man and have a white baby I was like and then and this is the way my anxiety works so like in two generations my grandchild's going to be on TikTok being like, look at my grandma. <laughs> I swear I'm black. And then like they hold the photo as like an artifact and everyone's like, ooh. <laughs> I'm like, I, I hope I don't have like one of those kids. But what's wild to me is how insular 
that is because it's like it always comes from within your community like with South Asian people it's like you're not Indian enough or like you're saying your name incorrectly or you have an accent and then it that exists in every different community right like you talk about it a lot in the book too yeah so much of that I talk about in the book because I think we really need to explore that that is also a response to white supremacy that is rooted in wanting to protect the culture from the assertion that it's less than that it's not good enough right so we want to instill and foster a pride in whatever group you are a part of and identify with because the other part of it is that white supremacy is telling you that's not good enough you shouldn't want to be that you should want to distance yourself from that so it ends up being like a power struggle for individuals to be like i want to claim my blackness or claim my heritage and also exist in the modern world like there's no way that you are going to be able to like operate as a human being without having like significant interactions with different people. It just doesn't even make any sense. So you have to prepare yourself for that by educating yourself on like what these things mean, but also knowing that you cannot hold the gatekeeping key to whatever culture it is as an individual, because that's what a culture is. It's a shared experience. So you have to be willing to share it. And the reason why so many people don't share it is because of like things like appropriation that like white people can come in and just cherry pick these things and be like, nope, I want braids or I want Bollywood or I want henna or I want, you know, A-A-V-E and decide like that's worth it. And we're just going to discard everything else. But really it's, it comes with everything. Like you can't love parts of a culture without immersing yourself in the whole thing. The people who are saying like, you are not Indian enough, you are not black enough, really what that's rooted in is a fear that like, it's going to be eclipsed by the like assimilation to like white dominance. As a, by the way, for those of you who don't know, and I actually had to look it up. So <laughs> um, as a DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion consultant, what do you, when you feel like you're in a situation like that, what is an appropriate response? I always try to remind people that like what we are fighting for is like full access to humanity. So there is no one way to be anything. People say this all the time. Blackness is not a monolith and it's really not just like whiteness is not a monolith. Like there's no infighting between people who say like, oh my gosh, like succession and hillbilly elegy can't like exist in the same universe. Like we understand that there's just two different views of experiences. And the problem is that for people of color, we don't get that many opportunities to show our different parts of ourselves. Like my friend Shmurti made Indian matchmaking on Netflix and that show, like she got a lot of heat from people who were very disappointed in the way that the community was being shown. But she's like, but this does represent a true experience for a lot of people. And hopefully this show and its popularity will make it easier for other people to make shows mm -hmm. about whatever their individual experience is. Hopefully in my book, even if you can't relate to the exact things that happen, it will make it easier for other books to get published because it's proof of concept that people want to engage with the story and they're going to read it. At the end of the day, all we need to do is keep opening more and more doors. And so as we are sharing our authentic experiences, that's what helps do that. 
And also, you know, the value in that being a profitable market in like opening that door, because I think there's so much pressure when you're like the first Mm -hmm. in the first wave Mm -hmm. to represent everything. And you can't do that because experience is firsthand. You can only speak from your point of view and there. Exactly. There should be no way that like Tyler Perry has this, has to shoulder the responsibility of representing everyone black or Mona Scott, who is in charge of the love and hip hop empire. Like I'm like, that's not really the shows I watch, but there's also not a reason why Issa Rae should have to shoulder that experience all all alone either. It should be an opportunity for everyone to participate and be able to storytell the way that they see is most authentic to them. And I also think that's breaking out of that scarcity mindset we have where they're unlimited opportunities so everything needs to be represented in the one form of art absolutely it's not fair like it doesn't happen to anybody else it just happens to people of color and how do you deal with criticism because I'm sure you know like you read oh oh, actually let me let me rephrase do you read like all the reviews and oh of course like are you someone who okay because there are a lot of people who are like, you know what? I just don't because I can't. <laughs> um, no, I do. I check every single day, every okay. single day. But I, and it's really funny. Like, so my book, uh, it was selected in the Amazon's first read program, which means that Amazon gives away a free book every single month to prime members who are signed up to this program. Anyone can sign up for it. Just go to first reads and sign up. And so my book was a first reads book. And so it was very interesting to see, I, I, that means I couldn't control. And when you write a book anyway, you can't control who buys it. Anyone can buy it. But there were a lot of people, white people, who also said that they were white in their reviews and were like, I thought this book would be more informative. I wanted to learn more about racism. I'm like, listen, sorry this wasn't traumatizing enough for you, but like, <laughs> let me also show you the trending, the trending books in like Black and African American literature because it's my book the Obama's book, but also so many slave narratives that it's like crazy. Mm. I'm like, wow, think about like how much long arm of history, like we are where like people are still just like wanting to get trauma porn from people Mm -hmm. of color. Like all they want is like, this is the hardest thing that's ever happened to me. And this is how difficult it was. And I was really intentional about like leaving things out in the book. Like I had an eating disorder and I refuse to put like methodologies and like things I would do in there because it can become like a prescription for someone who isn't necessarily on their own healing journey. Because I'm like, I would read books like that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, God, I never, I remember I never thought about Anna Tumblr days. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, I never thought about freezing grapes. Yes. Why don't I try that mm-hmm. today? You know, or I never thought about like all kinds of celebrity features and interviews would like drop these like terrible and toxic diet tips. I remember like somebody was like, every time I'm hungry, I just brush my teeth because toothpaste reminds me that there's a taste in my mouth. And I'm like, okay. So I didn't, I didn't start like brushing my teeth, but I started chewing gum obsessively. Right. Cause I'm like, oh, it's like being full. And then, you know, you can really convince yourself of that. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to like lean into writing about the app, like there was actually several things I left out in my book. And what I do think now that I'm looking back, one thing I wish I could have like put in more 
was that for every, if you struggle with experience I had with white people, I also had twice as many positive experiences, which does also put me in a position of privilege. And I don't think that like, I really communicated that as clearly um, in the book because it also means that there are white people I can trust. Like I have had so many good experiences. Like I know that like I can't have friendships with them. Whereas like sometimes what happens is like people who grow up in more isolated communities and then have to experience like meeting and interacting with white people in their college years or in their professional years, they end up having largely more negative experiences because they don't, they didn't have the opportunity to like build bridges of trust. Like things are just like higher stakes. Like think about just like how cutthroat everything in like media and in the creative industries is like you are getting, I mean, there are things that happen to me sometimes. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm stunned by like Mm -hmm. that move that someone would make. But because I had had so many experiences on over so many number of years, like it, I don't have like trust issues. It doesn't freak me out to like befriend someone white, you know, or date someone white, for example. And so when you get those responses, like what, what's your reaction? Like, do you, are you like a reactive person? Do you, is there a way to like respond in book reviews? No, no, I don't react. Like it just like, it's annoying because Mm -hmm. they'll be mad about something. Like one woman, I'll see if I can find it. It was like such an, now we're on the show unhinged. It was true. (laughs) It was unhinged. It was truly such an unhinged review. And they, this person gave me one star, which is upsetting because it drags down the average of the whole book. And so I'm just like, I'm sorry, but the book is well-written objectively. It is full of facts. I don't care if you personally didn't like it. It's also a memoir. Like it's a, it's your story. So when people are like, I don't relate or agree, you're like, that's okay though. You, that, exactly. But it's not your story. Like, Okay, so I found this woman. She wrote, her one-star review says, leaves too much out. And then she says, I feel for anyone who went through the youth that this author did. I did not because I was not obsessed with my looks, what I wore or what people thought of me. Yes, I am white. Well, you had the luxury of that experience and not everybody gets that. That's the the premise of the book is everybody has different experiences of that. Like you miss the point, sweetheart. Like very much miss the point. And then so it goes, then she goes on to be like a short story. My younger sister, second or third grade in the early 60s. And I I was also like. That's when you checked out. You're (laughs) like, all right, grandma. I don't know. I was like, how, who gave you access to an Amazon Prime account <laughs> in the first place. She got it for Christmas from someone. Um, but then she goes on to like describe this story about how her younger sister befriended a black child and then they welcomed the black child into their home. Oh no. Exactly, exactly. Completely missed the point. That that's the um geriatric version of I have a black best friend. Thank you. I have an Indian best friend. Thank you. You the always know racist. like the worst shit is about to follow that sentence. <laughs> I have a best friend or my cousin or I know you're like, here we go. You know, Mm -hmm. like everywhere you like brace yourself for some like really appropriated bullshit. Horrible stuff. Yes, exactly. So it's like, I already know what that is. So I do read them, but I'm like, whatever. More, More people like the book than don't like it. So I think that's what's important. And you like it, which is the most important thing. I love it. Love it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Something that I that really resonated with me, an experience I've never had, but you talk about your eating disorder and the distinction between being cured and being in reco- constantly in recovery. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. I think it's really like a bit like being an alcoholic. You have to choose like every single day that you are not going to like fall back into those patterns. Because I think that what's so present about an eating disorder is that it is a um, stress response as well. So like immediately when like things are getting out of control, the easiest thing to do is like stop eating, to stop feeding yourself, to obsessively exercise. Um, And so you have to really like fight for balance. Um, And so I try to avoid triggers So that means I do like less photo shoots. I do like less on camera stuff. I don't, I try not to put myself in positions where I am constantly thinking about how I look. Um, And I really am working on just being like, what I'm offering to the world is not how I look. It's not encompassed in my shell. Like the fact that I do look good is a bonus and people should be like, wow, I get to listen to what she says and she's pleasurable to look at. But like what I'm offering you is what I'm saying. Like what I'm offering you as an author is my book. It's not like the clothes I'm wearing or like the makeup I'm wearing or how my hair is at all. And I think that we need to allow more women to do that because so freely like men can do that and be like, Oh, what I'm offering is my work. Like you, you know, they're they can just choose to look however they want, um, and we don't give that to women. It's I mean, think about like just how female athletes are treated in relation to male athletes. Like their talent is on the field or the court or whatever arena like they play their sport in, but we also demand that they be beautiful or they be attractive to us. Like how many times do you read things where people are like? criticizing female athletes' bodies. Oh, that's too tall for me. Oh, I don't like girls that are that muscular. Oh, like I like girls that are more feminine, whatever. But who cares? This person is a soccer player. (laughs) And they're probably getting paid so much less than their male counterparts, which is the joke. And you want them to look attractive to you while doing whatever it is they're doing. That's not fair. Yep. And it's it's like a constant uphill battle because every day we're fed a certain message from Eurocentric beauty standards as a result of white supremacy that we're like almost not even aware of and like how like my my experience with that over the last year is like being pregnant and seeing my body change in ways that I had never experienced before and and a lot of the struggle was like but I should just, and you know, like I had two miscarriages. So I like, sometimes I'm like, you should just be so happy to be having a healthy baby or growing a baby, like focus on that. But then of course, you know, you're like, but I have like back rolls or hormonal acne or like hair and something like, and like, then you have to like remind yourself, like it's normal to feel that way because that's all I've, that's a product of everything I've been surrounded by. And also for better or worse, like 
you are professionally rewarded for looking good. Yeah. Like oh, that's that. how you get some jobs sometimes. That's how you get further along in your career, which again is not really fair, but like when it can come down to like making money or not, like you're going to choose like probably looking good for that reason. And you want to fit into the stereotype of whatever that version is. Like I know with like being a pregnant woman now, I'm like, oh, but I want to be the cute, like teeny tiny with a bump girl. And I'm like, not the like, I'm on progesterone. So I look like Hitch in my face as well. You know, like I'm like, but that's the version I know. Like I want to be that, that version. But that's why it's important to see so many different versions and to like, I mean, there's so many people who are in fashion who had babies and then they just, as soon as they got pregnant, they just disappeared off Instagram. And then one day it was just like, here's a bassinet shot of a baby because they, and you know, I can't judge people for, for wanting to hide. I obviously understand that impulse, but it's the media's job in general to reflect so many wider experiences so that we all don't have to fall into this. Like there's only one way to be pregnant because there's not, Mm -hmm. there's a million. What are some things that, and especially now that you're on the tour, I'm sure those like triggers for you, like being in public, working with the brand, having to wear a certain, like, how do you deal with that now on your journey? I also think that's, that's unfortunately the responsibility of being a quote unquote token, right? It's that people seeing me do this stuff will help them know that they can do it too even if it's an uncomfortable experience for me. So that is like a, a a responsibility that I feel okay taking on because I know it like helps greater good. Like in, in some of my book signings, a, a girls have come up to me and been like, I remember when you were in Teen Vogue and I followed you since Teen Vogue. And I was in Teen Vogue years ago. I was in, I was like had full spreads in Teen Vogue twice once in like 2009 and then once again in 2013 and i barely remember like that being in the magazine but it was so important for the audience to see me doing that even if it like i'm like i remember one shoot like i did not feel good at all i did not feel like i was worthy enough of being in those pages i was like i don't fit into these samples like it's an embarrassing situation for me but it was so important for other people to see me in that so it's like knowing that potentially you're helping other people with doing this and also i think it's just like a good exercise to like get over some stuff i'm like it really is bigger in my head than i'm making it so mm-hmm. it's okay like you are safe you can do this i have a better sense of self at this point like, and I you also don't have to have all the answers. Like no. even publicly failing, you know, or being like, I just don't know mm-hmm. is still enough and helpful for other people to be like, me too. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. It's – and I wonder if that like ever goes away. I don't know. We'll have to talk to like older people and ask them. Because it might. I mean, don't you yeah. feel like you care less than like you did when you were like 20? I definitely I do. I do, but like then it's like a whole new can of worms. Because <laughs> like, for example, like in my 20s, I was like, I just want to be young, hot, skinny and rich. Mm. And then like in my 30s, I like discovered a whole new like set of problems, which is like, oh, I can't get pregnant. I can't do this. I can't do that. And then now I've like gotten pregnant and I'm married, which are like, well, 
they were like my they actually weren't really my goals because I was like kind of non-traditional but now I have like a whole like is my baby okay like can I afford Mm. this like uh, Mm -hmm. how do I measure up to other parents like it's like at what point do you ever feel enough yeah which is like I I mean definitely a recurring theme of the of your book for me yeah where like when do we get there because like how is exhausting is that it's super exhausting I feel like I do see that it has improved. I would say even in like the last two years, I've cared less. I feel like I used to like get into, so I used to be like on social media, like trying to let everybody know like what brands were racist, like what brands were not. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know what? This free labor, it's actually too much for me. Like I can just do what I need to do professionally and not even worry about this stuff. because. I'm just like, I just can't be so focused on like what else is going on in the world. It's taking away from my creative energy, being able to like do my own projects. And also I have a consulting agency. These people should pay me for this information. Like that's just it. Exactly. We need to monetize (laughs) that. Yes. (laughs) This is reparations. Exactly. I want some like GCT from the fashion industry because I feel like you have such an amazing story of like being an intern, working in all these magazines. Um, you did like ruin John Mayer for me, I have to say. Um, I was not aware that he said his dick was white supremacist. You weren't? Oh no. my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm like working my way through that like trauma of separating the artists and the music right now. Well, what I it- think he actually has addressed it in um, more recent years. Um, I don't know if he's like outright apologized. I actually know a black, a a black girlfriend of mine, like said something to him about it. And he, he said to her, you can't believe everything you read, which is like insane because it takes zero accountability for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Deflect. (laughs) Exactly. But what's really kind of a very effective agent of white supremacy is that white people hate to be called racist. They hate to identify anything as racist. Racist is the worst thing you can be as if it's like a final destination. And in my opinion, like you don't have to sit in racist forever. You can actually just change your mind and like change your behavior. So hopefully he has done both of those things. Mm -hmm. Like I don't really know. I don't really keep up. Um, But it's not like a permanent state of being. So it's not the actual worst thing that could happen to you that like someone identify your behavior as racist. You could just apologize and fix it like it's possible to learn new information and just change but I want to know yes what's an experience you had in the industry that you've never publicly shared even though by the way if you do buy the book you get to you get a lot of GCT but I want like unhinged exclusive tea and then you can go buy the book and get the TBGT as well (laughs) (laughs) okay let me think oh I know. I mean, I know a lot and some things are like, I feel like being a a black editor at a, at a certain level in the industry was, um, it was like almost like being in like a secret society. Like we would talk about things amongst ourselves. There is a, an editor who in 2020, um, she started 
like claiming blackness in a really strange way, even though there were plenty of people who had been on the receiving end of her like being racist, like over the years. Um, and she has a white phenotype. Like, so like, if you look mm-hmm. at this person, like she looks like, and she appears white. Is she her- American? No. Knew it. <laughs> <So> sorry. <laughs> 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 sorry. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Um, and so, yeah, I did not put anything like that, but there was definitely like an older group of um, people that I, I can't believe still have jobs based on the things that they would say and do and like made it known to everyone who worked for them. You know, like people would be like, is it really like necessary for you to be skinny in fashion? And I'm like, when I had my first job, my boss's boss, like the big boss said to me and the other assistant that we were so big that we looked like Reese Witherspoon and all American girls are milk fed. (laughs) And, and we were both like 21 years old. So thin, like so thin. But I was like, what do you have against Reese Witherspoon? First of all, she's also a thin woman. (laughs) And so I'm not kidding. We would for, for dinner, we would work very, very late and we would get, um, we would get food for the interns and each me and the assistant would share a little entree because we were scared of eating too much. No. And sometimes but, we wouldn't even eat at all. <laughs> but I but yeah. I believe that. Yeah, but, it was really sad. Very devil wears Prada. Very. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny when those types of movies come out and pe- and like people in under industries in your life are like, is it really like that? And you're just like, I don't have the heart to break it to you that it's actually a thousand times worse. Worse. Yeah. yeah. Way worse. Like worse than what you can imagine. Yeah. Or when I like, like read TMZ and people are like, can you believe this happened? I'm like, can you believe it didn't happen? But then I'm like, maybe I'm so in that I'm like, these paparazzi photos aren't real or like all of this estate. I'm like, how do you guys not know this? And you're like, oh, because the general public actually believes that. I know the most frustrating thing that I think the public believes is that like people have their natural faces and bodies and like, that's just like what it is. And I'm like, that's insane. Like, or they'll do like an expose of plastic surgery. I'm like, that is like 5% of what has actually happened. That's what's happening with like a lot of the people in the industry. Well, they were like, like, I think Bella Hadid was on the cover of Vogue. It was like, I changed my nose (laughs) and we're all like, and (laughs) And, <laughs> but then there's the- also this. There's also this, like, how much are we entitled to know, right? Because totally, and I totally. Yeah. I, so one one tea that I did not put in, I put in mm-hmm. that I went to see Doctor Passler, who is a. I um, am obsessed with this experience, by the way. <laughs> like, I this is the part of the book where I'm like, how's this real? And I look this person up and he's, and they're still practicing and still exist as a, like, meant, like, unhinged, truly unhinged. But what people did, I did not put in is like that so many, I was like, I, the, the women that I saw, like made eye contact with at that doctor's office. I'm like, your fave, body positive girlies were seeing Dr. Passler because the industry standard is thin no matter what. And I'm telling you, like people who would never cop to it, never admit to it, 
I physically mm-hmm. saw them in that office getting their little shakes and powders, yep. getting their vitamins and weighing in every two weeks the same way I was. I definitely think that is, as an insider, such destructive information when you see these like icons who are supposed to represent like inclusivity and you're like, everything they've done counteracts that. From yeah. what I know. You're like, actually that's not the case and then you're like man is anything but then that's like a rabbit hole where you're like is anything real like I know. simulation like what can we be? I yeah. just hope more people are like I'm gonna go on a healing journey because like that's you know people are like how could you be so honest in this book and I'm like but dishonesty is like being like that like being like mm-hmm. I'm so I love my body and then secretly being on a crazy ass diet like that's, yeah. I think that's wild. I'm like, for better or worse, I always shared exactly what I was doing. I, me as well. <laughs> and like, I noticed I get asked a lot, like, how did you feel like sharing, you know, like miscarriages mm-hmm. or this or that? And I'm mm-hmm. like, honestly, it was harder not to share. Yeah. Share it. And like, yeah. I rather live my truth. If that's like uncomfortable, I'm okay with that because otherwise I'm like adjusting my comfort level for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And then like, that makes me feel worse. Like it doesn't make me feel better hiding that. Like, no, I don't want to be wearing a diaper and bleeding and like pretending I'm having a good day, you know? So, you and also feel- like at the end of the day, like there's nothing really shameful about these things. Like it's really things that like make us human and haven't like so many more like positive connections been spurred by like that honesty. Like, I just like don't really see the downside. No, but I think that is also a new way of thinking. Because like now we've democratized media with our own personal channels. So it's like we can actually own the narrative versus like what that would look like if you couldn't like own that, right? Yeah. Because otherwise. But ultimately I'm trying to get offline. I'm like, I don't want to talk to nobody at all anymore. I think that's, you know, like so many people say like, but ultimately, like, I and I do too. I'm like, my dream is to be totally offline. But I really love what I do. So I'm like, I don't really know if that's the case. I guess I don't want to feel like I have to participate at the level I have to. You know, like when people mm-hmm. are oh, like. Oh, you're like financially dependent on that. Yeah, like here's like, your delivery. Yeah, like maybe if mm-hmm. it was like fun and I could just like post whack ass sunset videos and stuff. Like, you know. It's like hilarious that we are governed by like what people are engaged with. So the thing that brings me the most joy in life, I like ride horses. I love to ride horses. Lowest engaged content I ever post. And I'm like, that's funny. The thing that really? makes me happiest. I would the think that'd that be I like a most. big horse, like girly fan. No, the people hate it. Because really? it's not glam. It's not like they want to be like, wow, like tell us about but the time you went on a yacht with your friend. Editorial. <laughs> like every brand does the like Ralph Lauren style, like horse. Fun. My followers hate it. They hate wow. it. Wow. Yeah. No idea. Okay. On that note, is there anything? <laughs> is there anything you have upcoming? We can support you with. You know, buy the book. Yes, please buy the book. Um, tell everyone you know to read it. Buy it as gifts for people. The holidays are coming up. I think it will make an amazing oh. gift. It's it's iconic on a coffee table or on a bookshelf. Yes, it is. Hot pink. So there's nothing not to love about it. And leave a review on Amazon. So you can leave a five star review. A five star. (laughs) (laughs) Counteract my average. Exactly. Gonna love and leave you. Thank you so much for being the first guest. I'm truly honored to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And I will see you in real life and see you guys next week. Ciao for now. 
Thanks so much for listening to Unhinged. And if you have excellent taste and enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe and leave me a loving review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at It's Amrit and submit those weekly questions for our iconic guests. I'll see you next time. Ciao for now.